0: Right, for our promise today, turn to Psalm one nineteen, Psalm one nineteen, verse eighty eight. You know, if you were to ask me, what is my favorite chapter in the Bible? I guess it would be Psalm one nineteen. Uh, nothing has done more f- for me in my life, as far as an individual chapter, than this uh, chapter one nineteen. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And uh, Spurgeon, in his commentary on the Psalms, called the Treasury of David. Uh, it takes 300 pages of commentary to to teach Psalm 119. And oh, it's just rich. Nothing is done for me. Outside the Bible, nothing is done more for me than that commentary of Spurgeon's and this wonderful psalm. And uh, Spurgeon gives it several names. He says it's uh, a garden of sweet flowers. It's an ocean of devotion. It's a paradise of devotion. And he just goes on and on and on. But... Uh, He says it's as deep as it is uh, wide. And he said if you really analyze every verse carefully, I think every verse in Psalm 119 has some reference to the scriptures with exception of maybe seven or eight verses. It's called the statutes of the Lord or the testimonies of the Lord or his law. But It's all about the word of God. And how he says, I rejoice in thy word as one that findeth great spoil and so on how we need to love this book. Well, what a wonderful promise here in Psalm 119, verse 88. It says, quicken me. Uh, Probably about eight or nine times in this psalm, he uses the word or the term quicken me. And uh, I think whenever you see the word wisdom in the Old Testament, I think when you see the phrase quicken me, uh, I think it's equivalent to the, uh, fully, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. David is saying, Lord, quicken me, fill me by the power of thy Holy Spirit. Cure this old deadness in my spirit. Make me alive spiritually. Quicken me. To quicken means to make alive. And I need the, the quickening, the, uh, the power, the greatest gift after salvation is the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest gift. There is nothing that I need more than to be quickened, to be empowered, to, made alive, to be made alive spiritually by the Holy Spirit every day. But I see a promise here. Learn to find promises in the Word of God. Well, what do I need to do to obey God and live God and live holy? I need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now look what David says. Quicken me after thy lovingkindness. So shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to keep the word of God, to live a holy life. It's really, it's amazing to me how often people miss that. Uh, I've been interested in some of these groups that are, you know, they kind of, they're there to help people break uh, drug addiction and things like that, some of these organizations. And I find fascinating how little they emphasize the Holy Spirit. I had a friend who was telling me that she had a son who was drug addicted and he'd been in rehabilitation with one of these Christian organizations. And I think these are good people. They mean well. But I'm a little, I said, well, how long has he been in the program? She said, six months. Now, I find it difficult to understand why you would need to be in a program for six months. (laughs) Maybe so. I'm, I'm not an expert in these areas. But I've had, I had a friend who was an alcoholic, a terrible alcoholic. And he said after he got saved, the night he got saved, he never touched another drop of liquor for the rest of his life. And uh, there's uh, been other stories of other people. They get saved and get born again. The Holy Spirit uh, it breaks the power of addiction. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't mean to be judgmental. Maybe there's some extenuating circumstances there that I don't understand. But uh, why would it take a Christian? She said the, the young man was a Christian. He was saved and being a real rehabilitated in a Christian organization. I I'm, I'm don't mean to judge, but I don't understand why it would take six months with the power of the Holy Spirit to break somebody's addiction. Now, if you understand that, I'd be glad to, be glad to hear about it I'd be glad to know. Well, what a wonderful promise that is. All right, we want to, we're now looking, we're still looking at prophecy. All right, now we've come, we finished the book of Zechariah last week. That great book had to remember the visions and so on. Now, let's come over to the New Testament. Let's come to Matthew 13. This is a very important prophecy here. In Matthew 13, we have what uh, some theologians have called the mystery form of the kingdom. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, he came to present the kingdom. Remember the triumphal entry that we looked at last week? What was the Lord doing there? At the, why, on the, he came on a colt. On a donkey, he came in humility, but he came to present himself as king. And he didn't come on a stallion like Alexander the Great or anybody else, or like a Roman uh, general. He came on a donkey. Roman generals came on stallions, war horses. Now, when the lovely Lord Jesus Christ comes back the second time, he'll come on a stallion. He'll come on a war horse, will he not? And he'll come back as a conquering warrior to claim his crown rights. There's great debate over the uh, the chronology of those end time events. But I believe the Lord will come back to Basra, down to Petra, and slay those armies that are trying to persecute the Jews that are in hiding there. And the word of God says he comes up from Basra, comes up from Petra, with his uh, garments stained with blood, (laughs) King Jesus will come back to destroy the armies of Antichrist and to claim his crown rights. He'll come back on the white horses, and we'll all be coming back with him. Those I hope we're all saved. I hope you all know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Uh, we'll be coming back on white stallions, white war horses. And we won't be coming back dressed, we won't be wearing military hardware. Won't be any helmets, no vests, no swords, no spears. What are we going to be wearing when we come back on those white horses with King Jesus? White linen. That's hardly spiritual uh, material, is it not? Or, or war material. Uh, we're coming back with King Jesus. But he came to present the kingdom there at the triumphal entry. He was doing two things, really. He was presenting himself as the king of the Jews. If they would put their faith in him and trust him as their savior... And he's also at the same time presenting himself as the precious lamb of God who will die and take away the sin of the world. So he's pre- presenting himself as our king, uh, presenting the uh, about to present and set up the earthly millennium, I believe. But remember now, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's presenting himself as the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And so he'll uh, be crucified. But he comes now at that triumphal entry to present himself as king and to offer the kingdom. Well, if you we go back one chapter in Matthew 12, they're going to reject Christ. You remember there was a miraculous healing there. He healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb there in chapter 12. And everybody saw it. The Pharisees saw this miracle. The people saw it. And instead of giving uh, him credit and acknowledging him as king and getting saved, trusting him as their savior, and placing their trust in the, the coming Messiah promised by the Old Testament, they rejected Christ. And, uh, and they said, uh, they, uh, who did they say healed that demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb? Those Pharisees. The devil. The devil. And even more than that in one sense, they called him Beelzebub the God of filth. And so they were in effect saying that uh, Christ healed and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit was the God of filth. And uh, that, uh, that is an unpardonable sin. Uh, do you remember? Uh, let's uh, turn to Matthew quickly. Matthew chapter 23. And here we see now where the Lord has to postpone the kingdom. He can't offer the kingdom now because of the rebellion of the Pharisees. But in Matthew 12, come down to verse, uh, uh, just come to the uh, bottom of the uh, verse 20, 22. It said, then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. Everybody saw this miracle. So intellectually, they could not say this was fraudulent, uh, that it was a, a sham. They saw that it had, uh, clearly a miracle had been done by God. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub. Yes, the prince of the devils, but the devil of, of filth, acting in acting in his role as the god of filth, uh, the god of defilement. And now uh, this is, they were performing or, perm- or committing the uh, unpardonable sin. Now, what is the unpardonable sin? You see a lot of debate about this. Some say, well, the unpardonable sin is rejecting the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm, that's certainly true. If you reject the Holy Spirit, you can't get saved, and you die in your sin and you go to hell. I guess that's an unpardonable in one sense. I don't believe that's. I don't believe that's what the Lord is talking about here. Um, come over to. Uh, come back to over rather to Mark chapter three. Come down to verse twenty-eight. Mark three twenty-eight. It says, "Verily I say unto you." All sins shall be given unto the sons of men, and blasphemies for whithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in the danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. What is the unpardonable sin here? It's calling the Holy Spirit the God of filth, (laughs) calling the Holy Spirit unclean. And that's that's the point that's being made. I don't know why there's such debate over what the, what the unpardonable sin is. The unpardonable sin is calling the Holy Spirit unclean. What what, what worse thing could you, what, what is why God has given the Holy Spirit to make us holy, to make us pure? What greater blasphemy could there be than to call the Holy Spirit unclean when his very purpose is to make us clean and holy, right? Well, I think that's the unpardonable sin. All right. So, now Matthew 13 has been called the mystery form of the kingdom. In, 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 in Matthew 12, the Lord is going to postpone the kingdom because of the rebellion. He's going to present himself as the lamb who will die on Calvary and so on. All right, so what the Lord's going to do now in one sense, he's going to change his plans. There's going to be an abrupt turning point. And the Lord no longer is going to be offering the kingdom. He's going to He's going to present the kingdom. He's going to, when you say kingdom, put the word millennium there. The great overwhelming number of times when you see the word kingdom, it means the millennium. The literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. It'll be a place of perfection and so on. So when it talks about the kingdom, it's talking about the millennium. All right, the Lord, they've rejected Christ, so the Lord is not going to set up the millennium at this point. There's going to be a, a, a change, a turning point. So now the kingdom is going to be delayed. The kingdom is going to be postponed. And so the Old Testament does not mention this, does not recognize this. The Old Testament does not predict the idea that the kingdom will be postponed because of the rebellion of Israel and the leaders. All right, so the Lord, the kingdom going to take a different form. It's going to be a, a mystery because the, <laughs> the mystery... Form of the kingdom, a mystery is a truth that has been hidden in the Old Testament. Not mentioned in the Old Testament, the Old Testament doesn't mention the church. Nowhere in the Old Testament is the church mentioned. There's several other mysteries: Christ in you, and the mystery of godliness, and so on. There's a number of mysteries, but the mystery is that in the Old Testament it does not uh, prophesy the postponement of the kingdom. So the kingdom here on the earth, in this in, in, during the church age, is a mystery. It was something that was hid in the Old Testament, but the church in the new, is, but it's revealed in the New Testament. In Matthew 13, the mystery form of the kingdom is revealed. And so, what's going to happen? All right, now if you look at these eight parables, it's the description of what the kingdom will be like during the church age. The age in which you and I live, it's a prophecy. Yes, the kingdom will not be literally set up in its full uh, 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 blossoming, uh, being uh, in its full expression. But, uh, of course, Christ is still on the throne. Christ is still king. So the the kingdom will change its form during the church age. And you see what that form is going to be like. In Matthew 13, these eight parables will describe what's going on in our time period, our church age. Since the kingdom has been postponed, then what's going to be happening for the next, at least so far, about over 2,000 years, right? All right, now let's come to these eight parables. This gives us a description. This is a prophecy of what the kingdom will be like during the church age, the age in which you and I live. Uh, it'll be this, uh, what goes on between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So Matthew 13, these eight parables are a prophecy of what it's going to be like between the time period of the Christ's first coming and of be second coming, the time which you and I are living. All right, now look at, um, look at verse, uh, come to, let's go to chapter 13. And in 13, now we see the mystery form of the kingdom, all right? It's going to be eight parables. The Lord is going to uh, walk onto a ship. He's going to be at the shore. And the multitude will be so great that he's going to have to go onto a ship and uh, sit on the ship and speak to the people on the shore. The great multitude is the great crowd on the shore. He's going to give them eight parables. He's going to give four parables sitting on the ship. And this is to the great multitudes to the great crowd, a mixture of saved and unsaved people. And then he's going to go into the house. He's going to leave the ship, go into the house, and give four more parables to to his disciples. But all these parables together are a description of what we call the mystery form, the form or the shape of what the kingdom's going to be like during the church age, from the first advent to the second advent. All right, now let's look at these... Um, Let's look at these parables. <clears throat> All right, number uh, Matthew 13, verse 1. It says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. <clears throat> and he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, he's going to begin to teach a parable by the way, is some illustration. Literally, it means something thrown alongside. So a parable is designed to give light and help people understand something. So it makes a comparison, trying to help people to see something, and so uh, and so it gives it increases light, gives more understanding. When uh, the Lord will bring in something, something to illustrate a truth. That's what a parable is, a comparison, something thrown in alongside, something brought in to give. More light and understanding. <clears throat> All right. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell uh, fell by the wayside. The fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. All right, now this first parable it gives us the primary purpose for the Savior coming into the world. Jesus Christ is the sower. God is the sower. And his primary purpose was to come and to give the gospel, to seek and to save that which is lost. So this parable is foundational and it gives us an understanding what all these other parables are about. The whole purpose of God was to come into this world, to come down from heaven's glory, die on the cross, give men the gospel, salvation. So here now the gospel is being spread. The son of man, he's the sower. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's sowing the seed of the gospel, trying to get people saved, And uh, but uh, three, uh, the word of God is suggesting here that uh, most people are not going to receive the gospel. Only three out of the four do not receive the gospel. The key word is understanding here. They don't understand. You can receive the gospel and uh, believe that, uh, uh, that uh, believe the gospel, believe what happened. And you can receive it and accept it, but uh, you may not understand it. You may not really be saved. You've got to understand the gospel. You've got to understand that Jesus Christ is deity. He's God, the Son of God. You've got to understand that he's the the only Savior from sin. I can't get saved by getting baptized. Baptism doesn't save me. I can be a very good moral person and, uh, and, uh, and not be saved. Uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ talked to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a very important religious leader. He was very religious. And he uh, was a very, very moral man, a very good man. But his religion and his morals uh, couldn't get him to heaven. What did Christ tell him he must what? What did Christ tell Nicodemus? He said, in effect, you're not saved. (laughs) Uh, You're going to die, your morality and your religion now, those are not going to get you to heaven. You're going to die in your sin and go to hell. That's what he was telling this very immoral religious man. What did he tell him he had to do to get saved? You must be born again. You've got to see Jesus Christ as Savior, the only Savior from sin. And you put your faith in Christ. When you put your faith in Christ alone for salvation from sin, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and gives you a new heart. We call it the new birth, do we not? The Holy Spirit comes in. He regenerates you. He gives you a new disposition. And uh, that's what it meant to be born again, to be regenerated. You need to be born again. You need a new birth. And without being born again, without a new birth, you can't get to heaven. So this is why he came, to seek and to save that which is lost. But when the disciples said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Now the Lord has changed his whole method of preaching and teaching now. In light of the rebellion of the uh, Jews, the rejection of his people, the rejection of the Savior, the rejection of the Messiah, he now begins to speak in parables all the time whenever there's a great multitude present of unsaved people. And particularly when there's Pharisees present Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that some of these people will be hard-hearted. They'll rebel against you. They won't get saved. They'll reject your truth. And so uh, the idea is when uh, these, uh, these Pharisees reject you and in rebellion uh, reject your message, reject the truth, then I'm going to be merciful to them. I'm going to judicially blind them. They don't want the truth I'm not going to cast my pearl before swine. I'm not going to cast the gospel, give people the gospel who hate me and who hate the truth. You ever met people who get insulted when you tell them the truth? They get get insulted when you tell them the truth. (laughs) I've met people like that. Well, these people got insulted when you told them the truth. And so uh, the more light you have, the more accountable you are, are you not? And so the Lord said, I'm going to judicially blind them. That was an act of mercy. The more truth you have, the more severe your punishment will be. (laughs) The more truth you have, the greater your torment will be in hell. So God in his mercy judicially blinded these religious leaders. So he used parables so they couldn't understand, so they couldn't see uh, out of his mercy for them to give them less light so their punishment won't be as great in hell. And so, but however, the disciples, those who love truth, who wanted the truth, who had a disposition to receive the truth, those parables helped them understand. So uh, the parables were used for two reasons. One, to judicially blind the rebellious who didn't want truth. Those swine, in one sense, that didn't want truth. and uh, But also to give truth to those who have a heart and a disposition for truth. So that's why he changed his whole after that rebellion in chapter 12 where they called him the God of filth, the Holy Spirit, the uh, God of filth, and uh, gave uh, the healing, gave credit for the healing to the Satan, to the devil, to the God of filth instead of the Holy Spirit. All right. So anyhow, this is the first parable because it's the parable of the sower. And then to understand all parables, you need to understand this. <laughs> The Lord, uh, the great purpose of God is to come into the world to to give the gospel, to save people. But sadly, uh, a great part of that ministry was allowing judicial blindness for those who rebelled against the truth. All right, then you come to the, uh, then the Lord now will explain this parable uh, to the disciples when he comes into the house. I'll ask him about this parable. The Lord will explain that to the the disciples in the house. Then you come to the second parable. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, Come down to verse uh, verse 24, 13, verse 24. See, in another parable, by the way, now look at 23 before we go on. There's a good summary of the previous parable. Who got saved? Three out of four, in one sense, did not get saved, in one sense. They never, the the key words, they never never understood They heard the gospel but didn't understand it. Uh, the only group that understood is this fourth group. This was the good soil. This prayer that some say that ought to be called the parable of the soils. It tells how people handled the word of God when they received it. Some received it uh, and did, but it never that they never understood it. Never sunk deep down in their heart and give them understanding. All right, in twenty-three we see that the good soil, people that really get saved and born again, they understand the gospel. They understand that Jesus is the only Savior that your faith must uh, must be in christ we're saved by we're saved through grace alone uh by faith alone in Christ alone we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. You can't add anything to that baptism, church attendance, good morals. <laughs> Uh, hell will be full of people who are very religious, good, moral people. You've got to, everybody's a sinner, and, and the only Savior from sin is Christ. You must have the right object of faith. By the way, faith in faith will send your soul to hell. The only object of faith, the proper object of faith for salvation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You've got to put your faith in Christ alone for salvation. We're saved through uh, grace alone, by faith alone. In Christ alone. All right. Then another, uh, then you're going to produce fruit, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Not every Christian uh, can produce the same amount of fruit. We all have, the Lord gives us all different abilities, does he not? Then another parable, verse 24, put he forth unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in the field. You now, the God, the fathers, uh, and the son, and uh, sons of uh, God, Christians are, in one sense, those that sow, as we sow the gospel. Then verse 25, but while men slept, his enemy came, the enemy is the devil now, came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. All right, now the word of God here is beginning to describe Christendom. In this day and age in which you and I live, we live during a time of what we call Christendom. Christendom is not Bible Christianity, but it's that world of professing religion. Uh, our, uh, and our, the cults and different uh, false religious systems that profess Christianity, that is Christendom. You have all kinds of people in groups that are not Christians. Mormons claim to be Christians, and so on, uh, a number of the cults. Uh, and uh, these uh, people all believe in works, salvation. If you believe you have to do something to go to heaven, you... You destroy faith. And so all this, this world of professing, Christ, professing religion, professing Christianity, all this external religion you see, these great world religious systems and so on, uh, that's all a part, a part of Christendom. Christendom is a mixture of believers and unbelievers. It's this external visible organization, the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches, all these liberal groups and liberal denominations and the cults. That profess Christianity, one word can be used to describe this world of professing religion, and then we call that Christendom. And we shouldn't uh, Bible, real Bible Christianity, in one sense, is not Christendom. All right, this is the world of false religion. Okay, and so uh, it's the world of a uh, profession of religion, a mixture of believers and unbelievers, and you see here. So the Word of God now is beginning to give us a description of Christendom going to begin to give us a description of apostate, corrupt religion, apostate, corrupt Christianity. And so uh, now look at how look how it takes place. It's very subtle. Uh, Satan is is a master of deception, and his great strategy is is deception and and deceit and so on. All right. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which, uh, verse 25, but while men slept, the, the devil came and sowed tares. But when, the, but when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in the field? from whence then, hath, then it hath tares. He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The devil hath done this. The servant said unto him, wilt thou, let, wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So uh, basically, apostate religion is a great counterfeit system. And so, uh, basically, these tares look just like the wheat. They call them darnell. But uh, these tares would uh, grow into the ground, and the tares, this uh, false wheat, you might say, uh, the vines would uh, would uh, ta- entangle itself uh, with the vine of the of the wheat or the roots of the wheat. And so, when you would pull up those tares, you pull up the wheat also because those uh, vines were entangled together. And so this is a great argument, by the way, for religious liberty. <laughs> the government is trying to dis, uh, trying to uh, pick out, uh, supposedly when you have a Christian government, like Constantine supposedly had, uh, well, you're supposed to weed out all these false teachers and false religions and so on. And so, uh, no, God says, no, you let, these grow to, let false religion and true religion grow together. <laughs> uh, government has nothing to do with these things. When government tries to sort these things out, they're going to be persecuting the true people of God as well as the false people of God. So uh, in this world, let them grow together. Uh, now in the church, we have a right for church discipline and to keep the church pure from false teachers and so on. But we're not talking about the church here. We're talking about the world. And in the world, we're to let false religion grow. (laughs) And we're not trying trying to stop now. We ought to preach against it and identify it and so on. But we're told to do what where false religion is concerned? Simply practice separation from it. <laughs> don't, uh, don't uh, The Word of God clearly teaches this great doctrine of separation. But you're not supposed to call the sheriff and have him jailed and executed for teaching false religion. Uh, that's not the job of the church. All right. But anyhow, we're talking about now in this mystery form of the kingdom. You're going to see false religion it's going to be very much like real religion. In fact, it's going to be so, such a masterpiece of Satan, you can't tell some Christian, you can't tell Christians from non-Christians a lot of times. And so this is the warning here. It's beginning to describe this mystery form. What form is the kingdom going to take now that he's postponed it? Well, it's going to look like uh, the false church and false religion and Christendom and so on. And that we as God's people need to practice ecclesiastical separation from this wicked system, <laughs> this wicked religion and false religion. So here the word of God is teaching now that there'll be false religion and great counterfeit religion. Sa- Satan is the master counterfeiter. And so uh, this whole idea teaches that things are going to get worse and worse. A lot of people like to teach the idea, well, we're going to Christianize society. We're going to make everybody Christians. Well, what, what do you call that doctrine where some people think you're going to Christianize society and make everybody Christians? And so, when the Lord comes, He won't need to set up the millennium. The church will already set up the millennium through good Christian teaching. We'll get all the we'll get everybody saved. We'll, go, we'll get all the those liberal newscasters on the evening news. They'll get all saved. and We'll get Christians in there teaching a Christian view of the news, and we'll get char- we'll take control of the universities and teach Christianity at the you know, at the University of Florida and up at uh, Florida State and all the uh, University of Miami, they'll all be just Christian colleges. What do you call that idea that we Christians will bring in the, the millennium? You remember that term? <laughs> That's post-millennialism, right? Christians will Christian, uh, preaching and teaching will Christianize everybody and uh, get the world to be Christian, then after we've done that, then Christ can come back because we've already got everything set up for him. Does it seem to be working that way? (laughs) Is the University of Miami uh, sort of becoming a Christian school now? People preaching the gospel down there, people getting saved, and those biology professors talking about how much they love Jesus and talking about creation, how we were created and so on by God. That doesn't seem to be working that way, does it? (laughs) Now, the world's getting worse and worse. All right, well, on that high note, I guess that will be a good time to stop. We'll pick this up next time, all right? Let's all pray and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we're thankful for the precious truth of your word. And Father, we pray, Lord, indeed, you might give us the spirit of wisdom and discernment and understanding in these matters. Now, Father God, bless the word today. Bless, bless, the, bless the pastor. Give him liberty. Give him power as he preaches. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.